Escape to the Countryside with us, Team Wiggly. We'll be talking about the environment, farming, biodiversity and the things we can do to make a difference in our own gardens. And sometimes we talk about running a small business. We happen to be this year's small business champion. I'm Heather. And I'm Richard. Fantastic. And indeed, I must talk about our small business. <laughs> small business champion of the universe or whatever yeah, it is. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, that's Just at the moment... We are treading water, aren't we? Yeah, it's a bit busy. But just, just under the surface, can't quite we survive. We haven't got time to do this podcast, really. No, we've got to go now, so bye for now, listener. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not that. We, we are doing our best to get everyone's orders out. We are working on mealworm orders, and they're going out every day. It must be mealworm bonanza time, mm. because I think it's 630 kilos we've done in the last two days. Right. That would usually be two weeks. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. And then we've got the national water butt shortage to play with. Yeah. I'm joined on the sofa today by John Harding, um, our genius photographer. <laughs> Hi, John. Hi there, Heather. And also Neville from Herefordshire Nature Trust Reserves. Hi, Heather. Hi. And the national water butt shortage was on the radio all last week. Did you hear it, Rich? Yeah, yeah, National Water Butt Shortage. Yeah. To uh, accompany the National Water Shortage. <laughs> exactly. Well, our water butt shortage is currently at 250. Right. So we haven't got those water butts. So sorry right. if you're waiting for one, but we will catch up. If you order on a Monday at the moment, orders go out on a Thursday. So sorry, sorry. Next day, uh, we do have <laughs> tons of tulips because they've all bloomed <laughs> at the same moment. Right. Blooming tulips and blooming iPods. And I want to talk to you about lawnmower pollution as well. Right. Did you hear anything about lawnmower pollution, any of you? No, I can't no, say not A steely silence. Well, yeah. it turns out that lawnmowers per gallon of petrol used are worse than a jumbo jet. No, no. Worse than a small car. Right. For pollution, etc., and so they were trying to find ways of not using the lawnmower or using the lawnmower more effectively. So, of course, the wiggly way is easy, isn't it? Yeah, don't mow your lawn. No, plant a wildflower garden, isn't it? Right, Much yeah. better. Um, so there we are. What's on this week, Richard? I'd like you to introduce our two guests. We're quite fortunate. We've got Neville Hart, who's coming on today from Herefordshire Nature Trust, who manages all the nature reserves in Herefordshire. Am I right in saying that? Not all the nature reserves in Herefordshire, but those that are owned and managed by Herefordshire Nature Trust. Right. Yes. Okay. And John Harding. Now, John's been taking photographs and sending them to Wiggly's completely off his own bat for how many years now? Oh, quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, I remember the first time I got the package in the post. Right. You know, because you get loads of things, don't you? And it's all fine and, you know, oh, I well. think it started really from the success of uh, using your mealworms yeah. with some robins uh, who became hand-tame. And then there was one shot where uh, one of the baby robins jumped on the other's back. It was so eager to get a mealworm. That's right. And I felt that that shot should come to you to show how much the Shropshire robins appreciated mealworms. And that really was the beginning, I think. I think it was. And I opened the packet. Right. And I pulled out this photo and it was a red fence with three robins with mealworms being exchanged by each other. And we were like... Wow! We just got to have this in the catalogue. And I asked John if I could use it. And he said, oh, yes, of course you can. And we were pleased as punch. And since then, we've had so many corking photos of him. We have. And and in actual fact, John's 
brought a couple of classics in today. One of our petrol, which... It's a, a leech's petrol. Leech's petrol, right. Um, which I foolishly said, oh, is that a kitty wake? But of course, kitty wakes are small white gulls and they don't look anything like petrol, so that's all fine. <laughs> but, um, oh. <laughs> you know, it's a stunning photograph. I remember we used to do... I still go sea fishing quite a lot. Um, and we, used to, we used to go shark fishing quite a lot. We, don't, we tend not to do it now because they're in a species in decline and whatnot. But when you're chumming for sharks, you let out a drift of rubby-dubby off the side. And we, we used to put loads of bran in with it and the bran would be floating on the surface. And you'd get little storm petrels just hopping on the surface of the sea, just picking off the little chunks of yes. mackerel and bran and whatnot. So I've seen these little guys. They're fantastic little birds. How did you get that photograph? Well, basically, I brought those two photographs along the ones that I particularly like because of the difficulty in obtaining a shot. And the one of the leeches petrol was taken on an island which is about 48 miles, approximately 48 miles off Cape Roth, right. uh, out into the Atlantic, and probably, I, I think without doubt, classed as Britain's remotest island. The, the problem was how to get there, and that was a challenge in itself. Yeah. So we actually uh, chartered a fishing vessel... Right. Uh, to take us out there, and a party of about nine went. So it was a real adventure? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. because there was no fresh water. There was a spring on the island, so we took our own fresh water. Uh, we took a doctor with us just in case. Uh, yeah. He was mm. a very clean ornithologist, right. and it, it was absolutely a great experience. It's not the nicest of passages sometimes, of course, and, of course, the worry is... Is the guy going to come and get you off the island? Yeah. Because yeah. there's no oh, mobile God. communication at all. Is that, is that worry? I'd, you know, I'd be quite happy with the fact <laughs> that I might not, <laughs> not be able to come back. No, I definitely yeah. want to oh, know well, that yeah, for another six back. weeks. Oh, well, never mind. But a wonderful <laughs> island because it's a place where you can actually put your equipment down and leave it and nobody's going to take it, nobody's going to steal it. But more importantly, the wildlife is absolutely spectacular. We went there especially to try and see this little bird, the leech's petrel. It's one of probably uh, three islands, off, uh, remote islands, that it nests on off Scotland. Right. But this one, a very special island, it was last inhabited in the 1600s and the population of about 30 um, unfortunately eventually died because rats invaded the island, right. uh, probably from a, a shipwreck. Yep. Um, and also a passing ship raided their food supplies and eventually they just ran out of food. Wow. So the perfect scenario for biodiversity on an island really is the you know, lack of human life. Absolutely. Yeah. And the r remains of the village are still there and that little bird was taken in the wall of a church. So it's a very small church, built of stone. How close were you to it when you took that? Uh, very, very close, um, probably within six feet. Normally the birds only come out at night, right. and the island comes to life with hundreds of these little birds wow. as soon as uh, darkness comes. So that was you know, a really wow. that, was a, that was a great adventure, wasn't it? That it was indeed. Know, that, that definitely wasn't one of your, your uh, Thomas Cook package holidays. No, I'd like to do it again sometime. Yeah, so, John, yeah. are you what I would term as a twitcher, then? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't go off, uh, you know, if I hear... Some people that are twitchers uh, go off when they hear of a rarity and they go to see that rarity. I'm more interested in, in the wildlife that is around us and uh, hopefully to maintain it because so many species are, are rapidly disappearing and everything we can do, be it in our gardens, uh, with feeders, anything like that... 
doesn't right. really help. Lots of little oases for, for birds. Perhaps we can't get the huge nature reserves we would like, but the small ones will help, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's absolutely right. But I, oh, I've, got a, I've got a have link to uh, nature reserves. Are you going to let me or not? Yeah, yeah, go. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was it. Oh, OK. <laughs> Just then. Yeah, that's right. But you've got more. I was, there, I was there before you. Sorry. <laughs> I take it back. I, uh, I was just, it just occurred to me, you know, when you said, uh, when you said that, that I know that whilst uh, local nature reserves, wildlife trusts are very keen to preserve pockets of land in, in counties, there is a consensus that, that those pockets of land aren't sufficient to support the amount of life that you know, could be supported in those counties. Would you agree with that, Neville? That's, that's totally right, Richard, yeah. The problem we've got in this country is that we haven't got a very big island that we live on. Right. and we're, we're all frantically trying to farm it and make crops and have livestock for, for food and things. So wildlife has it's basically been squashed to the margins, to those little bits of land that are under-managed or, as, or are positively managed for wildlife, which is the situation we've got in Herefordshire. You know, as a nature trust, we're one of um, 47 county wildlife trusts around the country, and we've got just over 50 nature reserves. Some of them are tiny. Some of them are an acre in size. Some of them are big, 100 acres. But even on that scale, it limits... The habitat that's on that size of land limits the amount of wildlife that it supports. Right. One of the things, one of the thrusts the whole wildlife movement is trying to work towards um, at the moment is actually landscape scale conservation. And it's something, you know, we're working towards. Worcestershire, Shropshire, all the local counties see that as the main thrust for wildlife conservation, which is about... Creating larger spaces where wildlife can go through their life cycles in a natural way. There's linkages between those sites. In Herefordshire, we've, we've got good hedgerows and we're, you know, we're quite a highly wooded county. Right. But there's still big areas where there's nowhere for wildlife to actually move. Highly mobile wildlife like birds can easily repopulate. But where you've got lots of invertebrates, they can't actually move very far. They can't actually go from one site to the next, then they've got a little island population on our nature reserve. Right. Um, and one of the things we strive to do is try and expand our nature reserve, try and find ways of buying land to increase the size, buying the land off our neighbours and restoring that back to more sort of semi-natural habitats. Right. Right. Well, why do you think that that's the way to do it, rather than encourage farmers to have wildlife corridors and actually farm in a more sensitive way. Why do you think that to have these pockets of isolated land is what should happen? Doesn't that separate wildlife from farming? Whereas yeah. what we can do is surely join it up. Yeah, you're quite correct, Hera. The problem we've got is unless we conserve what we have, we can't get to a point where we no longer have to manage nature reserves. That's the ideal, that's the ultimate. We don't have to actually have to concentrate all our money and resources and efforts on tiny pockets of land. We want a countryside that's vibrant and live and dynamic for wildlife, don't we? We want hedgerows that are flourishing and flowering and, and full of berries and provide um, routeways for wildlife. But unfortunately, agriculture hasn't gone that way. We've given subsidies for farmers to grub up hedges in the past, to, to clip their hedges. People still want to grow crops, don't want them shaded, things like that. There's a bit of a movement at the moment with the whole cap reform, as you know, being a, being a farmer. And that movement is to try and stimulate 
farmers to, to take into account how they manage the land for wildlife and, and provide undermanaged or unmanaged corners and, and improve how they look at their hedgerow management and things like that. And that's coming through the whole agri-environment schemes at the moment with the single farm payments, the cross-compliance <laughs> within there. Oh, I must All words that <laughs> get the blood boiling for farmers, I'm I, sure. I must tell you, update on Farmer Phil. He can't be with us today, he's farmer filling. But I did catch up with him and I said to him, Phil, have you received your single farm payment? And he said, no. (laughs) Not a surprise. (laughs) But yeah, ideally we we, we want wildlife abounding in our gardens, when we're walking down the country lanes, on the motorway verges. But unfortunately, our population's increasing, we've got more cars, our farming is changing. Now, hopefully we'll strive to that, but... You know, some of our species are only found on one or two sites, including our nature reserves in Herefordshire. So if we don't actually put our efforts in making sure that those, those rare beetles, yeah. those rare amphibia or birds are actually protected and conserved for however long it takes for us to reach that ideal, then we've got no hope, really. So that's why we concentrate on managing our nature reserves. That's why we, as a, as a trust um, and all our members that support us, believe that's one of the things we should do. But that's not what the Wildlife Trust is about. We're doing many things, not just looking at our nature reserves. That's just my job, really. Yeah. We're looking at the wider countryside, trying to Absolutely. steer farmers and landowners as well, not just farmers, people on land um, around and about that, you know, they may not know how to manage it or where to get stock to graze it or don't have the money to, to fence it so they can put some grazing animals in there. Yeah. Dear listener, you will normally hear toast snuffling in the background, but today... We have with us Rosie, who is not a dog, she's John's partner, human, and Jem, who is a... Border collie. Border collie. Uh, ten time. months old, very enthusiastic. So all... Oops! Except that one, our Jem. Right. And all scooby scooby doos are Heather. We've been talking a lot about, on the podcast, Neville, managing the countryside, you know, and mm. discussing aspects of it and whether we should intervene... For example, last week we spoke about the fact that on our pond we've got lots and lots of drakes and right. a couple of lady ducks. Ducks. Hmm. ducks. So how, what, what are you talking about when you talk about managing a nature reserve? Do you cull, kill? Do you inflict death? What's the story? <laughs> well, <laughs> interesting, yes, it's an interesting way of encouraging people to, uh, to, to keep grey squirrels down using terminology like that. Yeah. Excellent. I know where you're going. <laughs> Part of the problems we've got on managing sites is they're all semi-natural. A lot of our grasslands are developed because of the way farming was in the past. And a lot of flowers flourish. So a lot of what we do is actually intervention management. It's yeah. keeping our habitats at a stage that we want to see them. We could let them just do their own thing and they turn to scrub and then ultimately woodland. You know, that's natural succession. But the species that we want to conserve, that we want to see on those grasslands, are only there because we cut the hay meadow or we graze that pasture. And the plant species then support a range of invertebrates. So hence we get a diversity of flora, we get a diversity of fauna. And that's what we want to try and establish and, and maintain on our nature reserves you know ecosystems are quite complicated things there's at every stage of decomposition there's there's things there from bacteria breaking down wood various invertebrates coming at different stages of of wood rotting down so you know with our woodlands we want to see lots of dead standing trees or a good proportion dead standing trees and dead wood on on the ground we'd see this in a natural system 
but we don't have any natural systems. Man's been managing woodlands forever, taking out dead wood, making space for new trees, planting different species that they want to grow. So our, we strive to get back to that natural sort of wild wood. So a kind of unnatural, natural moment in time. Have you picked a year or something? You know, maybe 1930 was the perfect <laughs> year when farmers were farming perfectly and planting yeah, yeah. hedges. And is that the year? You know, it's are not we a historical so thing, Heather. No, it's not. It's not. Say, we're not saying in 1942 that grassland was the best it ever was. No, we're actually looking at traditional farming management techniques when we're looking at grasslands. We're looking at they cut it at a certain time of year. They grazed it afterwards for a certain period. That took off all the regrowth. It opened up areas for the, the seed that had fallen from the plants during the haymaking. It formed little pockets from the hoof prints. There's dung coming down from the grazing animals. That provides habitat for dung beetles and flies and the like. Every part of that system has built up certain niches for certain insects yeah. or you know, wildlife. And wildlife has evolved with those systems as well. And, so, and as soon as you start changing systems, wildlife that has evolved to fit a tiny niche, and it might be just laying eggs over a number of weeks in a certain part of the year on a certain type of deadwood or a certain flowering plant, lays its eggs, the larvae feed on that food plant. If we don't manage it in a certain way and those food plants disappear, then in theory the species can't breed on that site. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. We don't understand every single detail, I certainly don't, but we know that by managing it a certain way at a certain time, it confers those benefits. And we can, we can sample for certain species and say, yeah, they're, they're our priorities. We want to make sure that they're there. And this leads into to, to your sort of question about do we kill, do we cull? We've also got this problem that man likes to do certain things like bring the pretty species across from foreign lands. We've had fallow deer introduced in the Norman times. We've got muntjac deer introduced in the 1900s. We've got our own indigenous deer species, raw deer and red deer, that have been here since the last glaciation. So which is best, Neville? Well, they're all, they're all busy nibbling away at our countryside. <laughs> and because we have what we call, you know, fragmented wildlife habitats, we've got these islands we call nature reserves, which are just a finite resource for wildlife. We've got limited hectares of woodlands and things. We've also, on the, on the other side, we've got all these fallow deer and other deer populations slowly increasing. And the thing about fallow deer is they like to wander through the woods and just browse. That's what they, you know, the vegetarians, they, they, they'll, they'll nip out all the young shoots on low trees. They can only browse up to a certain height because they're only a certain height themselves. But the problem is, at high densities, they end up having a fundamental effect on changing the structure and the diversity in woodland. Some species are selective, you know, they'll, they'll like to eat hazel and gelderose and things, but they might not like older. So over time, if you didn't do anything, you'll gradually get that woodland changing. Not only will you get, in theory, the type of woody species growing in there changing, because the high browsing pressure takes out all the seedlings, so you don't get any new plants growing, takes out anything that you cut down you know there's a tradition of coppicing woodlands that have been in the past for producing charcoal and other produce and that whole coppicing system conferred benefits for certain species they evolved to fit into that system and a lot of the wildlife trusts are bringing back coppicing on certain woodlands that are suitable now the problem we've got is the high deer numbers the high browsing pressure means unless we protect everything we cut down 
We call coppicing, it's basically cutting a tree down, but yeah. it regrows and re-establishes itself, you see. But the deer come along and nibble all the new shoots off because they're nice, tasty new shoots. And if we don't protect those plants, somehow we can't re-establish that coppice. It eventually dies out, so those coppice stools actually die. Some people would say, NIMBY, yep. not in my backyard can that deer go, when we've got deer that come down and graze on the crops. And some people would say, if they've been here since the Norman times, and you're picking a time in the nature reserve's life of, say, 1930, you are talking about pre-war agriculture. Only on certain, certain habitats, though. Not on everything. Not, okay. Not, yeah. Humour me on that. Yeah, I will that, be. <laughs> <laughs> Darling, yeah. humour me on that. You know, live and let live. And how the heck do you justify that sort of management when it doesn't seem to make any sense in my mind? Why have you picked that moment in time? Why are muntjacs and fallow deer any different to other deer? You know, how, how is that possibly I think, right? I think you know, there's, there's an interesting situation that you know, sometimes nature conservation is, is full of contradictions and there are instances where certain species of animals, uh, efforts are made to preserve them. For brown hares, for instance, well, they were, they were introduced to this country. Wild boars, now there's a, there's a problem with wild boars, got them down at Ross and Wire, and they're incredibly destructive, arguably a lot more destructive than fallow deer. Potentially. You, you, potentially. And, you know, certainly forests in, in France, for instance, where they've got boar populations that can't be controlled have suffered beyond compare. But, of course, wild boar were here and they were made extinct in the 17th century. So to argue whether or not a species should be culled on the basis of its, whether it was originally indigenous or not is probably a little bit tenuous. However, I think there is a really good argument for controlling certain species of animals. Fallow deer undoubtedly do need to be controlled because they are a very successful species, quite invasive, and they do compromise the growth of many, many important native species. And they're very tasty. They're very tasty. <laughs> and coppicing, you know, in its own right, is really, really important because, for instance, we've got chestnut palings uh, in the Wiggly Garden yeah. from, you know, from, from, from a local uh, coppice. Um, not only are they aesthetically beautiful, but you don't have to go through the whole process of wood treatment, etc., etc. So my feeling is the most important part of, of habitat management is to establish markets to make them financially sustainable. Deer numbers, for instance, they can be controlled, mm. and there are really effective ways of, of, of controlling deer numbers, but a market for venison should be really at the, at the foremost of the, of the efforts made to control those deer numbers, because then it can be done in such a way that people are able to eat fallow deer, which is you know, very, very tasty, probably second only to roe deer to eat. But it, just to control those animals for the sake is very, very difficult and hard to sustain mm. in much the same way as many of the nature reserves at the moment, say, for instance, they, their traditional management is reliant on teams of volunteers going in and, and trimming off land, taking the grasses off in order to encourage the native wildflowers to proliferate year on year. But, you know, arguably, again, that's unsustainable. Um, but I know that nature trusts are making a conscious effort to draw in the wider community. Mm. And harking back to, you know, your comments about the importance of the wider picture, you know, conserving nature holistically, you know, that is much more important than just having pockets of land. You've got to continue the management to maintain what has evolved on that site. Mm. But Richard, you've brought up many points really there. One of the key things, I think, is that, yes, many species are naturalised now, and we have to accept them. They're part of our natural wildlife. Mm. The problem is, things like deer don't have any natural predators anymore. That's right. The only thing that can control deer numbers is us. And that's physically going out and deciding at what level we want to see those deer yeah. at. Which basically comes back to 
are they doing damage to our priority habitats yeah. and affecting other biodiversity? And that's what we're about. It's not about culling and eradication. It's about looking at it objectively and saying, what are our priorities on our nature reserves? What are the rarest things? What needs to concept? That's what we do. That's what English Nature does. That's what RSPB do. That's where we put most of our efforts because they're the things that are going to become extinct if we don't. But the funniest thing about the whole conversation is, of course, that's what farmers do. For absolutely as long as I can remember, the farms in this area have controlled certain animals that they don't want to eradicate them. They don't want to deplete their numbers, but they do want to contain them. And so, for example, yesterday, Phil was ploughing on the top and there was 14 buzzards. Now, that might be a really good thing and that's probably, you know, worth a discussion. But 14 buzzards compared to a few years ago where, you know, they were controlled to a degree is incredible. Mm. So, you know, I'm interested in who decides the balance. It's interesting that you're doing Mm. that and what I call what you're doing is farming. And I call what you're doing being a countryman. And yet there's a definite difference between what you fancy not having and what a farmer fancies Indeed, it depends what your end product is, isn't it? If your end product is a crop that's not nibbled to death, then you're going to control things. If if your end product is a good lambing season and you have foxes that might be taking after both all lambs, then you want to kill those foxes. That's understandable. But it depends on what you want, what your objectives are. Our objectives are wholly nature conservation. But we're practical people. We understand. We live live in uh, one of the most rural counties in the country. Agriculture has been the most important thing to develop this county as it is now. And that's what it makes it so special. And we need to work with farmers. But we need to understand what farmers require but farmers also need to work with us you know the population generally want more wildlife that's why cap reforms and governments are thrusting for farmers to actually manage in that way you know and i'm not being controversial we need farmers we need (laughs) produce but at the same time we want to see wildlife out there as well you know people buying your products want wildlife in the garden but not just solely in your garden and we don't just want wildlife on our nature reserves either in the same way we all collectively are working towards the same goal but not necessarily together in uh, and in the same direction and that's the big challenge really isn't it we're going for it here aren't we neville now (laughs) the thing is the last question because we have to wrap this up but you both are so interesting that we're going to have a double whammy issue next week but my last ask of neville the expert is what about my drakes? Bit of a problem. Ducks on a pond are not a great thing. They poo a lot, not great for the water, not great for the light levels, not great for the plants. They also eat a lot of invertebrates, a lot of the water beetles and things. The higher the population of ducks on a pond, the less biodiversity you'll get. And the other problem is they're probably not all mallards, they're probably crosses, are they? Just a minute. They probably are, there's some crosses, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and they're They're probably... They're ducks, yeah. Well, they're probably quite... um, They they feel the pond's their home, they're not flying between ponds, they're quite sedentary, and thus their effect on that pond is going to be even greater. They're going to compete in terms of mating and things. You're not going to have that many nesting sites. Reality oh, is heck. that pond doesn't really want to support probably that many ducks. You know, it's, the choice is yours. It depends what you want. If you want a diverse wildlife pond, then you probably need to think about getting rid of some of your ducks. If you want ducks 
and a nice duck pond, you know, then, you know, that's what you've got, and that's, that's great. Win- I told Windsor, you know, he loves to shoot. <laughs> He's got Windsor from Wales. I did get him mixed up with Prince Charles once, Windsor from Wales. <laughs> yeah. And he wants to shoot those ducks, and I have kept him away. Yeah. And so we've really? made that, you know, that well, pond is a kind of haven for, yeah. for all things mallard-like. <laughs> uh, the unfortunate thing is, they're, you know, ultimately, they're having a detrimental impact. Oh, you don't know how to get it right, do you? It do? depends <laughs> what you want. It comes down to what you want and what, you, what you're able to do. But I'm not proposing people go out and shoot their ducks on their ponds at all. <laughs> ducks are our wildlife as well, you know. But it depends what you want. If you tolerate ducks and have a, a you know a relatively good pond, and that's that's great. You know there are other ponds out there supporting native wild ducks as well. So, John, what do you think? Ducks live another day. Well, it's always a balance, really. <laughs> but I think if you like your ducks, then perhaps it should be a duck pond. Fantastic. <laughs> thanks both, and thanks Richard. And we've just got time for Monty's Wormcast. The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty. A weekly fact on worms. I went on the Paul O'Grady show on television to show how to compost using worms. Thank you, Monty. Talk to you next week. Bye.